The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And Hillary Clinton is finally weighing in on that weird, creepy guy who was standing behind her in St. Louis that one time. It was incredibly uncomfortable. He was literally breathing down my neck. My skin crawled. It was one of those moments where you wish you could hit pause and ask everyone watching, well, what would you do? Let me interrupt here to say that I feel for Hillary as a person. But as a communicator, let us note that in those three sentences you just heard, there were three cliches. But let's continue. Do you stay calm, keep smiling, and carry on as if he weren't repeatedly invading your space? Or do you turn, look him in the eye, and say loudly and clearly, Back up, you creep. Get away from me. I know you love to intimidate women, but you can't intimidate me, so back up. An interesting counterfactual. We know Hillary decided to carry on, and here she explains why. I chose option A. I kept my cool, aided by a lifetime of dealing with difficult men trying to throw me off. I did, however, grip the microphone extra hard. I wonder, though, whether I should have chosen option B. It certainly would have been better TV. Maybe I have overlearned the lesson of staying calm, biting my tongue, digging my fingernails into a clenched fist, smiling all the while, determined to present a composed face to the world. Hillary made the right choice, though I can understand why she'd be tempted to rethink the decision. And it wasn't really a decision. It was instinct. And though it might have been learned behavior, it literally was what she prepared for. Her debate prep team anticipated that he'd crowd her, and this is what they decided to do. Now, Clinton won that debate by 10 points. She'd won the previous one by 31 points. If Hillary Clinton is going to rethink any of the campaign, it should not be any of the three debate performances. And she also gave a pretty good convention speech. She was good at the conventional aspects of politics for which one could study and prepare and excel at. That's who she is. That's what she did. And it wasn't enough. Sort of why it wasn't enough. She wasn't good at the gonzo showmanship, the reality show bluster, that captivated enough of America for Donald Trump to win. This was, of course, set against a huge populist moment sweeping the world. Clinton certainly made mistakes. She should have visited Wisconsin. She should have emphasized an economic agenda more. But as with any overdetermined, extremely close outcome, you make any number of different decisions, and that could change the entire thing. I understand that Hillary has regrets. I understand that she's second-guessing herself. Tactics in the normal political stations of the cross should not be what she's second-guessing. She did well in those debates. And Donald Trump promised something that Americans were ready to hear. So that was the national mood. And then intervenes James Comey and, yeah, some Clinton tactical misfires. And Donald Trump wins the day. And now he is actually delivering on that one unspoken promise of his campaign to repeatedly invade our space until we submit. Resistance in the spiel as we play excerpts from Donald Trump's Phoenix speech and gently suggest that he was not, let us say, entirely forthcoming with all the facts. But first, Donald Trump did eventually fault the Nazis a week and a half ago, but he also, of course, blamed violence and hatred on many sides. 
many sides. He actually said that. He said the many sides part. It's a fun fact. Phoenix speech notwithstanding. So let's get to the other side, the Antifa movement. And we'll talk about Antifa, that's how you pronounce it, with a top academic who has studied them. You know, he and I go at it a little with billy clubs of rhetoric and urine balloons of knowledge. Eventually, though, I think you'll agree that we reach an improvised aerosol flamethrower of understanding. The events in Charlottesville woke a lot of Americans up to a couple of groups that one they knew about, one maybe they were just learning about. It's not as if Americans didn't know that there were some neo-Nazis or some members of the KKK neo-Confederates, but the events over last weekend convinced people that these groups were more virulent than they had previously assumed. Then there is the Antifa, which we maybe have learned aren't even pronounced Antifa. It's the Antifa, the anti-fascists. Who were these people? Were they the same anarchists who were destroying plate glass windows a decade ago in Seattle during world trade protests? A top scholar of the Antifa is Mark Bray. He's a historian of human rights, terrorism, and political radicalism in modern Europe. He's a lecturer at Dartmouth, and he's coming out with a book. Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook. Hello, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Hello. Thanks for having me. So political radicalism in modern Europe, is that where that movement started? Yep. You you guessed it. So basically, if you look back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, those who were most vigorously opposing Hitler and Mussolini and, and Franco from the beginning were an assortment of communists and socialists and anarchists who at different times formed different coalitions under the banner of anti-fascism. And then the kind of modern militant anti-fascism that we see today grew out of opposition to a xenophobic wave that grew in the 70s and 80s, largely against migration uh, from the Caribbean, from South Asia, uh, from the Middle East. And so in this context, like leftists and Migrants form these self-defense groups to try and fight back against the National Front in Britain or, uh, you know, the Republican. Uh, they were called the, Re- the Republicans in, in Germany, although not the same as our Republicans. And so that's where it comes from. And you've seen with the Trump that that's, uh, that's a form that a part of the left has taken to fight back against the alt-right. And in America, from the punk scene, it grew? Yeah. So, I mean, that was also true in, 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 Europe, in Europe to some extent because – In the late 70s, the skinhead scene, which was originally not racist and grew out of the interaction between uh, Caribbean culture with migration to Britain and sort of like a a teddy boy kind of uh, mod aesthetic, became infiltrated by neo-Nazis. And so that's why people think of skinheads as Nazis. And they tried to take over the punk scene. And so the original kind of Antifa in the U.S., which called themselves anti-racist action in the late 80s and 90s, was originally designed to push the Nazis out of punk scene and then expanded to be a broader movement. So to what degree, when we say it grew out of this, to what degree was it coordinated? Because I can understand you're a punk and you hate these Nazis, and so you want to oppose them. You might not even have known that there were some antecedents in uh, pre-Nazi Germany. Right. So like the original folks that came up with this in, in Minneapolis in the late 80s were reading like magazines, magazines from Britain from the anti-fascist movement there and decided, like, oh, we should try to do something like this because we have the same problem. Beyond that, of course, you know, 
it, some people knew the history more than others, but for most, it was kind of a practical reaction to a threat that they were seeing. And today, if we look at Antifa, there is the Torch Network, which is the descendant of anti-racist action. And there's like a dozen groups that are part of this network, but most of them are just on their own. Now, with Germany, I thought that there were the Nazis, the brown shirts, and the communists, the red shirts. And um, it seemed to me that they clashed, but I don't, obviously, the Nazis are certainly on the wrong side of history in every way. But if you were living in Germany in 1932, would it be clear which group was the violent one and which group was the anti-violent one? Or did they just both seem like the violent ones? If we realize that after World War One, pretty much every political party and group across the spectrum in Germany had its own veterans organization or paramilitary organization. And throughout the 20s and 30s, they were fighting each other. So like politics in Germany was violence. So it's not as if people were deciding with their allegiances based on who or more or less violence, but the politics behind it. Right. But uh, I guess the question is, if today, if we trace these groups back and today the thesis that you're promoting is that they're not violent, they're anti-violent. Was that actually as true, you know, 80 years ago? Different country, different time, but was that as true? Um, well, the, the anti-fascists of the early 30s in Germany were not anti-violence. They were revolutionaries. They wanted to overthrow the government and they wanted to destroy Nazis and both through physical confrontation and also through mass organizing and unionism and, and popular politics. So Hitler promised order. Hitler was, of course, one of the great liars in history. But to a person of Germany in that period, would it seem that the red shirts versus the brown shirts, two revolutionary groups warring with each other, uh, maybe maybe the brown shirts did uh, represent order uh, versus chaos? Well, of course, questions of order and violence are all based on your perspective, right? So if you were, um, you know, a conservative anti-Semite in Germany, then sure, you would think to the promise of getting rid of the Jews, the promise of, you know, installing an authoritarian state with Hitler, the head would promise order. If you were a socialist, then you'd think that, oh, getting rid of Hitler and making a, uh, a welfare state would promise order. If you were a centrist, you'd think getting rid of all of them would create order. You know, it's a matter of politics. And that's why I think this conversation has to keep politics in mind at all times. Uh, I'm a centrist today. Uh, mm -hmm. Should I should I look askance at uh, Antifa? Well, um, that frankly, that's your call. Um, you're welcome to do that. No, what um, I want, I mean, my goal, I think the goal of most Americans is certainly uh, eradicating as much as possible neo-Confederates, KKK, uh, Nazis, uh, tamping that down, fighting racism. You know, I just want to get, I, I want to get to that goal as efficiently as possible. Does Antifa complicate things or does Antifa actually, you know, thwart the Nazis, do you think? Yeah, there's a number of ways that this can be done. I think, though, that we can have a reasonable disagreement about tactics and methods while recognizing that sometimes having a, a big open toolbox of forms of resistance against Nazism can be useful. And as we've seen uh, in Charlottesville, for example, most of the people who came out to confront the white supremacists did not intend to have to defend themselves. But sometimes if you're organizing a big demonstration against racists, they may attack you. And as the clergy said, Cornell West and others, anti-fascists were instrumental in defending large parts of this group 
when the police were absent. So I think there is a role for it. Not that we all have to agree on these things, but I think it's worth understanding them. Why in the 60s, in the civil rights movement, did it seem that nonviolent protest was the successful tactic? Are, are we actually wrong about that? Did circumstances change? Or was it, would it have been impossible for Martin Luther King to uh, violently op- oppose Bull Connor? So I think if, if you pan out and you look at the fact that there were those who agreed with Malcolm, there, was, there were those who agreed with Martin about how to go about fighting you know, against the Klan, against white supremacy, we can see that to some extent the sort of uh, white liberal sympathy for the African-American struggle softened up when the specter of race war brought about by the different riots made the demands of people like Martin Luther King see all that much more reasonable. So putting it in the context today, the existence of uh, nonviolent anti-racists, the existence of Antifa, the existence of NGOs, all these kinds of groups sort of coexist and sometimes can support what each other is doing without even recognizing it. But the point also that needs to be made is we need to think about the question of nonviolence in terms of fascism, because nonviolence works by leveraging public opinion. And then, you know, fascism and Nazism is premised upon the rejection of listening to public opinion. It's premised upon the supremacy of violence. Right. And Gandhi's nonviolence worked because the English were capable of being shamed. But I don't think society now is like Germany, Weimar Republic, Germany. I think that the overall sentiment is so against the fascists that you can use shame and use the goodwill of people and just try to even shame police agencies into providing enough protection that you don't need to have clashes in the streets between citizens uh, putting aside if one citizen is on the side of good and the other citizen is on the side of Nazism. A very good point. Yes, I agree that the public opinion is overwhelmingly against white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And I agree that our best weapon against them is bolstering that public opinion and using it by shaming them and making people who advocate this kind of stuff pariahs from society. When did the most recent rise of Antifa, when did it happen? And has it been a steady climb? What what can we, you you, you talk about the punk scene in Minnesota, but it wasn't well known then. So talk about that. In the 90s, the Anti-Racist Action Network had a few thousand members and chapters around the country. It was like an institution of the radical left, but not known mainstream. That kind of declined in the mid-2000s, and in the late 2000s, you have the growth of more Antifa groups, which took more of an influence from Europe, hence the sort of name shift. And it started to really take off with the Trump campaign and with the concerns around the alt-right, and then, of course, as you know, has become mainstream recently. So if Antifa is a useful uh, bulwark against right-wing Uh, ideologies like far right wing, neo-Nazi, KKK, we should be able to look at the charts of the rise and fall of those ideologies. And I'm looking at the Southern Poverty Law Center, right? And see that as Antifa rose, some of the uh, the Klansmen and the neo-Nazis declined. But that's not what I'm seeing at all. On a local level, there has been success in shutting these groups down. But it's not, anti-fascism is really tiny, right? It's not going to be able to, on its own, do the macro work of pushing back against these groups. It requires organizing of all kinds. It requires goodwill from all sorts of people to push back against it. But I do think if you live in a neighborhood and you're an immigrant and you have a house down the street run by neo-Nazis, you're you're well served by having some local anti-fascists keeping an eye on them. Yeah, keeping an eye on them non-violently or calling their bosses or doing clever things to shame them publicly or everything that I would support that's non-violent. 
Well, also, you know, if they're coming to your door, standing there with clubs to protect you. I mean, that's the reality that a lot of marginalized Yeah, if they're coming face. to your door, but if they're going to a park to actually go to the park across the street with your own clubs, I'm sure the anti-fascists will say the fascists attack them first, and I don't doubt them. But then what we all see is a bunch of people beating each other in the street. And I don't know that that gets much further than the pictures of Cornell West and the other uh, frocked clergymen, you know, standing up against the Nazis. It is incumbent upon us to think not only in terms of the media narrative or the images, but also the politics behind it and ask ourselves, is there a difference between racist violence and anti-racist violence? And I think there certainly is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Cheryl Gay Stahlberg got criticized for saying that she saw a lot of hate on both sides. That's just her reporting. I'm sure the anti-fascists hate the fascists. I do, too. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. That's why I think the term hate is is misapplied here. Yeah. Because I think hating fascism is perfectly fine. Yeah. And I am really just trying to, uh, on Meet the Press, I saw you have a debate, essentially. I don't know if the debate was exactly fair. It was with someone with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I didn't sense that you fundamentally disagreed with this guy. But you were more on the side of exactly what you've been saying here. You know, it's fine to defend yourself or it's acceptable or sometimes you have to defend yourself. But when I look back at the tactics that worked, and we talked about a few of them, it doesn't seem that citizens resisting fascists with arms has been the best tactic. I just haven't seen historically pointing to, and this is where armed members of the anti-fascist group stood up to the fascists, and then the fascists went away in a permanent way. Well, for example, uh, in the late 1940s, after World War II, there was the rebirth of the union movement in Britain which was essentially an extension of the British Union of Fascists, and they were confronted by a really dynamic group called the 43 Group, composed of Jewish World War II veterans, whose policy was essentially whenever the fascists set up on a street corner to espouse their anti-Semitism, they would organize to go and um, assault them. And uh, by the end of the 40s, they had canceled hundreds and hundreds of fascist meetings, and the union movement was crushed. So, you know, there are examples of both. I'm not saying it always works, uh, and, and I certainly don't think that everyone needs to follow this. But the reality is there are some people doing it. It's useful to understand it, and it can play an effective role. Do... Fascists want to feel under attack? They will feel victimized and play the victim role, no matter the circumstances, even when they take power. If you look at the speeches from Hitler and Mussolini, even after taking over, we're under siege, we need to go to war. So, yeah, sure, they'll say, oh, we love fighting, whatever, we love, you know, everyone's against us. But if you take a step back and look at the strategic implications of what needs to be done to stop them, uh, you can't always just rely on what fascists are saying because they're fascists. One last strain of questions, guns. Militias have shown up in support of the neo-Nazis. They say they're there to keep the peace, but we saw clearly what side they were on. And sometimes they're wearing camo and look exactly like uh, actual appointed law enforcement officials. What about Antifa? Uh, are they arming themselves with guns so far? Well, well, first of all, um, the broader anti-fascist movement has different sort of segments to it. So we've thus far been talking about the Antifa groups, which to my knowledge, do not show up armed with firearms. There's another group called Redneck Revolt, a sort of armed self-defense, predominantly white working class movement of anti-fascism. And they have shown up to some of the alt-right rallies armed, though I believe no exchange of fire has occurred. So that is one example. Another example is there are some, there are some uh, sort of uh, black power gun clubs. There are some queer and trans liberation gun clubs, such as one in Rochester, New York, called Trigger Warning. 
So there is kind of that part of the tendency, but the sort of those groups that call themselves Antifa, I don't believe have showed up armed. But what if they do? Would you support that? Well, you know, I'm not part of these groups. What I say has nothing to do with what they do. They're not listening to me. All I would say is that I think the principle of self-defense is legitimate. We should always, in general, as, you know, humane people, always try to solve problems with as little violence as possible. But I think that we also need to recognize that neo-Nazis and fascists are monstrous, vile human beings, and I'll always stand on the side of those who fight against them. Yep, me too. We just maybe disagree a little bit about yep. the, F- the the methods. Um, Which is fine. Yeah, yep. It is fine. Uh, I just have one last question. The Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, the handbook for the anti-fascists or for us to understand the anti-fascists? It, it's basically a book both for folks who don't know about this to understand it, to read some stories and anecdotes and examples of how this has looked in different times and places. And I also get into more, much more extensive the explaining the kind of rationale and justification from the anti-fascist perspective for these politics. It's also recognizing the fact that most American radicals and leftists and even anti-fascists don't necessarily have a strong knowledge about all of the intricacies and details of the movement in Europe and elsewhere. So in that sense, I hope to give them some sort of greater perspective and context to situate what they're doing. So it's both. Mark Bray is a lecturer at Dartmouth and the author of the book Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. Thank you, Mark. A pleasure. And now the spiel. Donald Trump held a rally in Phoenix last night. He also held a speech in Reno today, but that was kind of normal. It was a little presidential. He didn't go all spittle-flecked, what with the band of veterans surrounding him on stage, all in their veterans VFW caps. By the way, what is it with that style of cap? There are two categories of people in America who get to wear those particular caps. One is the greatest generation who sacrificed so much for us, who we glorify with parades and holidays. The other group is soda jerks. So if you storm the beaches at Normandy or once snuck a little fudge ripple into Johnny Miller's sugar cone, you get to wear the same hat and a grateful nation honors your service. But in Phoenix, no matter how hot the temperature was, the Donald brought the heater. And according to the man himself, the mercury was traveling in an inverse direction to failing CNN's ratings. It was a sizzler. I was over at the Yuma sector. It was hot. Like 115 degrees. I'm out signing autographs for an hour. I was there. That was a hot day. You learn if you're in shape, if you can do that, believe me. And they actually told me, actually, sir, it's relatively cool today. Can you believe that? It is cool because you, sir, you bring the soothing placidity and graceful ease of your office to this entire experience, good sir. By the way, yesterday's high recorded in Yuma, 108, not 115, and CNN reported that Donald Trump signed autographs for 45 minutes max. But it doesn't matter because that was reported by CNN. And what do we think of CNN? Or CNN, which is so bad and so pathetic and their ratings are going down.
right? CNN sucks. CNN sucks. Oh, just think how many of our problems would be solved if there were just no CNN. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Kim Jong-il, Bashir al-Assad. You think those are our enemies? No, those aren't our enemies. Our enemies, Anderson Cooper and Aaron Burnett. She is a little worse than Ayatollah Khamenei. Don Lemon, that guy's the real threat. And with sports, the goofus from the Bleacher Report. That's why you, you screaming nudnik in the crowd, that is why you don't have a job because of Don Lemon. You thought the Hakati Network was the problem? No, it's the cable news network. And by extension, CNN headline news, also a little worse than Hakati Network headline news. Stands to reason. I mean, if Kim Jong-un went away and Khamenei changed course, all we would have is a world much safer from nuclear war. But if CNN went away, I mean, think of the impact. That alone would bring the doomsday clock from two and a half minutes to midnight to, I don't know, 4, 4.30. You know, during that hour when the great Satan, Jake Tapper, seeks to thwart American greatness, to addict your kids to opioids, to steal your jobs from you. Yeah, that's what they're doing over there at CNN. I mean, if CNN were to go away, let me ask you this. Do you think Donald Trump would actually like it? Or would it be a little like if the coyote actually caught the roadrunner and ate him? I think he'd lose purpose. He'd be left to wander the desert, setting off defective Acme traps and explosions, trying to recapture the high that he once got from the chase. Which brings us back exactly to what Donald Trump was doing in Phoenix. So this, the next thing I'm going to play, was the most remarked upon part of the speech, where he patiently explained to the audience that he was unfairly judged for failing to immediately find fault with the Klansmen and Nazis. He, of course, didn't mention the couple follow-up statements which contradicted each other, and he didn't talk about his assertion that there were some good people within, many good people, in fact, within the crowd of Nazis and Klansmen. Sorry, Klans people. No, wait, Klansmen. We could say Klansmen. We're not going to get complaints for that one. Here, Trump reads his words, his words, this is him talking, and asks, what's the problem? Again, this is him speaking. So here's what I said really fast. Here's what I said on Saturday. We're closely following the terrible events unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is me speaking. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence. That's me speaking on Saturday. Right after the event. That was him speaking. But of course, him not speaking the words he spoke that set the whole thing off in the first place. That this was an egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. Many sides. Now, leaving out the many sides, isn't that a little like Bill Clinton saying, look, I said I did have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I said those words. I said every one of those words. I said them. Or Congressman Joe Wilson defending the time he screamed at President Obama during a joint session of Congress by saying, yeah, I yelled you. What's wrong? I yelled you and I was talking to him. It's a pronoun. You. Maybe it was like you, you, you. I don't see what's wrong by getting all red faced and screaming you at the president. And I screamed you. I don't know. Maybe Trump was engaged in more literary license. Like during A Tale of Two Cities, that famous opening sentence. It was the best of times, period, full stop. Remember that sentence? And then maybe him wanting to note, it was the best of times. I said it was the best of times. I can't believe the dishonest Dickens claiming that I said 
anything other than it was the best of times. Or maybe Trump was channeling another politician, a prince of sorts, Hamlet. And who could forget his fine soliloquy? To be. I love to be. To be. That is the declarative statement. Put that on a hat. To be. Let us now end with Donald Trump whipping the crowd up through force of logic and just a shared background. So that was my words. Now, you know, I was a good student. I always hear about the elite. You know, the elite, they're elite. I went to better schools than they did. I was a better student than they were. I live in a bigger, more beautiful apartment, and I live in the White House, too, which is really great. I think, you know what? I think we're the elites. They're not the elites. So let's parse that. I went to better schools than the elite did. I was a better student than the elite were. I have a better apartment than the elite do. And I live in the White House and the elite don't. Therefore, you and I, because all those things are true for both of us, me up here and you in the MAGA hat, we're the elites. Brings to mind another quote. I'm not the puppet. You're the puppet. And that's it for today's show. Dan Schrader produced The Gist. He's studying radical protesters against the cast of the Jersey Shore, the Jim Laundry Tantifa. Mary Wilson, producer of The Gist, embedded for years with the radical opposition group to the Ford Aerostar, the Vantifa. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, protests Nazis and fascists, but instead of dressing in all black, he wears a shapeless flowing garment and counts himself as a member of the Kaftantifa. The gist. Standing up to bullying ice cream men in their weird hats. We will not normalize your dispersal of nut-based ice cream by the scoop. The butter pecan tifa. The struggle is real and it's delicious. Oopuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>